the doctrine of atonement. The high priestly work of Jesus Christ is something that um, I, we will never completely understand. I was drawn to this passage uh, this week, or this subject, and uh, was pretty much oblivious to our Sunday school lesson in Psalm 110 until last evening when I started thinking about the Sunday school today, and I'm just encouraged how I think well prepared you are to, uh, to think with me as we, uh, as we go through this. The high priestly work of Christ, where not only was he the high priest, is he the high priest, but he was also the sacrifice that was offered. And that work that was taking place there is what we commonly call atonement. And there is uh, much um, dispute about what the atonement of Christ is and what it means. And different uh, segments of Christianity believe differently about the atonement of Christ uh, than others. And I think that it simply highlights the fact that it is nearly impossible for us to understand the entirety of it. It's complex. It's beyond the scope of, of what we humans can comprehend. Furthermore, it's beyond the scope of what the English language can actually describe. For instance, as I studied and as I preach, I'm completely aware that in the relatively short time that I talk here this evening, I'm not going to be able to capture all the things that atonement, atonement applies or implies. The word atonement in the first place, in the English language alone, like I said, is ambiguous. It, it means it has multiple meanings. And I think several of them apply to what Christ did. It, the meanings are diverse. In the second place, as we find when we study language, it is not broad enough. It does not cover all of what Christ did. And to call Christ's work as the high priest that oversaw the sacrifice and the fact that he was the sacrifice himself gives us lots of problems. In the Hebrew culture, we're familiar with the Day of Atonement where the priest oversaw the, for the confession of the sins of the people for that period of time or that year they needed two goats to complete the fulfillment of what was captured in actually one lamb or one goat, Jesus Christ. The word atonement occurs in the King James Version of the New Testament uh, only one time. And it's found in Romans chapter 5, verse 11, where it says, Not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And the Greek word is another word for the word reconciliation. And I, as I thought about that, I think that that actually 
is and captures one of the definitions of the word atonement. It has the idea of bringing together. We're most familiar with this word. As we describe Jesus' death and suffering, we describe it, I have described it, we have heard it described as the bridge that crosses this great chasm that people cannot cross. Jesus provides us access. He reconciles us to God. And the New Testament at several places picks up on that. It is as if atonement becomes reconciliation where we become at one with God, with Christ. When you can think of the word atonement as tearing it apart and saying it's at one meant. Reconciliation. <clears throat> the, Greek, the Greek word reconciliation or that's used or translated reconciliation in some other places, at its natural word usage is to designate the reconciliation of parties that were at variance um, one from another. There was disagreement. There was difference. There was, um, yeah, there was a gap. In the Old Testament, on the other hand, the word occurs in the King James Version, as we know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew or translated to English from the Hebrew language. And the word atonement is used rather often, at least 40 or 50 times. And it has a different meaning, a different meaning than the New Testament word. The Hebrew word is the word that's often translated propitiation. And that's not a word that we're completely familiar with. But I think the best definition for the word propitiation is the word satisfied. It has the idea of there needing to be a payment. And it's the same idea that our Catholic friends get the word penance. There is necessary for payment to be made. So when we find ourselves outside of where we ought to be, away from Christ, we have done something that, was, that places us at distance with Christ. There is payment, penance, that is required. The propitiation word implies that what is done, the payment that is made, is sufficient. It satisfies. It's enough. It's what was asked for. It was what was required. In our case, in the case of the entire human race, God was insulted because of the sin. The sin of Adam and Eve and the sin of every one of us. And that required atonement. Because of sin, we found ourselves at variance. There was a distance between us and our Creator. And God was propitiated or appeased by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And before that, He was appeased or satisfied by the sacrifice of the animals in the Hebrew system. At least at that time, it was what God required and asked for. 
What I'm especially interested in at this point in the sermon is the usage, is to point out the usage of the word atonement in the English Bible, the King James Version. And I'm pointing out that the word in the Old Testament conveys the notion that something that is done to satisfy God in order that the sins of the people can be forgiven or that the payment that was required is satisfied. It's, it's completed. There is what needs to be done is done. And secondly, I want to communicate that there is, again, communion to a point that we can have with our Creator. We won't fully realize that communion until we're in our glorified bodies, where God will restore what was lost at Eden. Another way of saying this is that the Old Testament use of the word atonement is the um, use that we have in our English language where, let's say there is a crime committed, this is something very everyday, I think, um, where there's a crime committed or something does something that he or she shouldn't have done, and perhaps it's a very serious mistake, but we say that they atoned for what was done by living a good life after that, or by making a change, by not repeating the offense. And that, that is the, the same idea that's actually carried out in or the word usage that is meant in the Old Testament. <clears throat> the payment that was required was made. What was asked for was satisfied. It carries the idea of compensation for what was committed. And it's a compensation that has become necessary because of the offense committed against God. The notion of compensation or satisfaction is implied in the Word of God, especially in the Old Testament. Like I said, distance came to the entire human race because of the sin that we inherited, the sin of Adam and Eve that was carried and passed on to all of their descendants. And satisfaction is made to God by way of sacrifice. And sacrifice restores favor um, from Him. The word atonement, as you can see in the English, is used in two rather distinct ways. Um, It implies different and somewhat distinct meanings. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I think in my opinion, as I studied, Jesus fulfilled both of those perfectly. And I think that's the rest, the hope that I especially want to find uh, rest in. Most of the time, in our uses of the word, it's more frequently, at least the way I look at it, when I think of the word atonement, I, I think I am more aligned with the Old Testament way, that there was a bridge, there was a connection. Man was restored in the fellowship by having done or having received what was offered by way of a sacrifice. We use it in theology. 
We use it as a reconciliation. We are brought at one with God. And God is pleased to accept us. And because of that, we are again restored in favor with him. I especially find myself, as I studied and prepared, drawn to the word satisfaction. And I wish, I wish that as I was growing up, and perhaps even now yet, I wish that I could especially um, emphasize this word in our teaching, the word satisfied, that God has become satisfied with what is done. That satisfaction is not, there is not another sacrifice. There is not another Jesus. There is not another way to come to him. We'll point that out just a little later. The word satisfaction. I wish that we had acquired the habit early in our experience, in our Christian experience, to emphasize the fact that God is satisfied with the work of Christ. I wish that I had bought into that more. I think it conveys a much more adequate account of Christ's priestly ministry. And again, we'll look at that a little later as we look at the book of Hebrews and especially look at Jesus' high priestly work. It is something that God is satisfied with. He is not looking for a new way or some additional way. What Jesus provides for us is enough. It is satisfactory to God. And I'm excited about that as I think of it. You see, mankind was estranged from God by sin. And Christ, as as our great high priest, has brought us back into fellowship with him, with God. And how was that done? And I think that's the question that we'll be dealing with tonight. It was through the death and the suffering, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. All of those things together completed the work that God had in mind from the foundation of the earth, from the foundation of the world, the Bible says, and it is what satisfied God. It brought satisfaction to his plan, his purpose. What does the Bible teach about atonement? What does it teach about the satisfaction which Christ presented to God in order so that we can be received into fellowship with him. I came across this quote this week, and it was something that I want to learn more and understand more completely, but it's true. You cannot understand what the Bible says about salvation until you understand what the Bible says about the thing from which we were saved. Until we understand, along with this concept, the doctrine of sin, and the separation that comes into our experience as a result of sin, and the separation that came as a result of Adam and Eve sinning. Remember, God's word to Adam and Eve was that in the day you eat, or the day you disobey, the day you violate God's law, there's going to be death. And death is just another word for separation. There's going to be separation, and that happened. When Adam and Eve sinned, they couldn't They couldn't believe how things had changed. And we live with that change to this very day. We asked a question about the doctrine of sin. 
we study the doctrine of sin. And I think in one, if, if there is one word that describes sin, it's the word separation. Sin separates. Sin, sin brings death, just exactly like God said it would. Every one of us are sinners. Every one of us had the sin nature. Even, even in our born-again state, we deal with the flesh, as the Bible talks about. There is things that, that we're constantly, there's things about our lives that constantly remind us of our need of restoration, of reconciliation. We daily, always need this reconciliation, this bridge that Jesus Christ built. We're in need of it. Sin, it tells us, is obedience to the law of God. It is a violation to what God established. And the law of God, the Bible tells us, is completely irrevocable. It, is, it cannot change. It will not change. It cannot change. Why is the law of God permanent? Well, it's because the Bible actually talks about that. It says that it's, the, the law of God is rooted in the nature of God. God cannot change, and therefore His law does not change. He cannot retrace his law. He cannot retract what he's required and still remain God. <clears throat> when the law of God says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die, that awful penalty of death, separation, runs its course. God is never untrue to himself. In other words, if sin were not punished, God would be untrue to himself. And that is, that is something that cannot, will not, it is impossible to happen. God cannot be untrue to himself. Under the amazing law of God, man was placed in the Garden of Eden where he was created. If he obeyed the law of God, he would be given, I think, eternal life. I think that's what God intended from the beginning, is that man was an eternal being. There would there would be fellowship, there would be um, eternal life, no loss of any kind. On the other hand, if he disobeyed the law, he would be punished with death or separation. First of all, there would be a spiritual separation and eventually a physical death on earth. And the Bible goes on to describe what Revelation calls the second death, which is eternal spiritual separation from God. Man entered into the world with every advantage. He was created in knowledge. He was created with righteousness. He was created with holiness. He was created with, in, in a state of, of uh, communication with God. He could be in the presence of, of God and they could be in the presence of each other without shame. There was absolutely nothing that separated them from God's goodness and his fellowship. There was no limitations. He was created positively and absolutely good. And yet in that, in that situation, he fell. He disobeyed. He violated God's commandment. He transgressed what God had said he should not do, could not do, without consequence. And so he came under the awful curse of the law. In Genesis chapter 3, we have that account. And I was again impressed that God took sin so seriously that he immediately dealt with it. He immediately dealt out punishment. And in that same conversation, he also immediately put in motion a plan of rescue and redemption. 
It tells us so much about God. Those two things. was God was talking to Adam and Eve. He, he mentioned and dealt with the consequences that came as a result of their fall and their transgression. But in that same conversation, he immediately lays out a plan for rescue and redemption. Under that curse is all mankind, every single one of us, are dealing with the curse, with the consequences that were dealt out, that were doled out to Adam and Eve and the snake in that conversation there in Genesis 3. Even though it was made to the first man, Adam and Eve, he was the central head of the race and is to this day. And Romans tells us that there was a, another Adam, a last Adam, as he's called in Romans. Jesus Christ, who undid, who made a way for us to be restored back into fellowship with him. This last Adam is the central head of, of the, uh, the people of God. All mankind, descended from Adam by birth, are under the dreadful penalty of the law of God. We, are, we find ourselves separated from God. Just by virtue of the fact that we are human, we have inherited the sin nature. We sin. And the penalty, the consequences of sin and separation is resting on all mankind. Now, if God is to remain God, that needs to continue. The penalty of sin was ordained in the law of God. The law of God was not some arbitrary thing that God decided for certain people or not for other people. It was not a changeable arrangement in any way. But it was an expression of the nature of God himself, his holiness that demanded separation from sin. <clears throat> so how can sinful man become saved? Well, there's only one way. Jesus says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, and so on. There's numerous other passages that we could turn to. Jesus is the way. The only way that man could be restored in the fellowship with God was if there was a suitable sacrifice that was offered. There was no, there was no suitable sacrifice among men. All of us are under the curse. There's not one of us that is able or would qualify to be that sacrifice. Even if we were willing, we would not be able and there's, I don't think, any other way in the spiritual realm that would be qualified for us. But Jesus came to earth as a baby. He took on human flesh. He became one of us, as the Bible says. He took on flesh so that we could be restored in the fellowship with him. He could be like us. And he lived in, in, the, in the flesh, in a human state, without sin. And as a result of that, he was qualified. He was not only able and willing, but he was qualified to be the, the, the sacrifice. As I tried to show out, point out to you, the Bible teaches, I believe, that there needs to be a substitute. This substitute is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All the animals of the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus Christ. 
And since Jesus Christ, there is no other sacrifice. We accept, when we become into fellowship with God, we accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and that becomes the atonement. There's no escaping that. Jesus satisfied the demands for us when he died on the cross. And Romans, I mean, first, 2 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, it says, We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Has that same connotation. The idea of being restored back into fellowship. For he hath made him to be sin, or many translations use the word the sin offering for us. It was the payment. It was what was required. It was suitable. It was sufficient. It brought satisfaction to God. And the reason he did this is so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's Jesus Christ. I've been using the word satisfied deliberately here this evening. And I shared why. I think it's important for us to observe that when Jesus died upon the cross, that satisfied God. There is not something additional that is payment for our sins. Jesus was the suitable sacrifice for our sins. Not in part, but in full. I think there are several misunderstandings that we need to guard against as we talk about this. I think we need to guard against it in a very careful way. In the first place, when we say that Christ paid the penalty of our sin, we do not mean that when Christ took our place, he became a sinner. The Bible does not describe it in that way at all. Jesus never sinned. He was free from sin. He was a perfect, sinless version of humanity, something that not one of us can say. And the fact that he was sinless qualified him to be the Lamb of God that was suitable for our sins. Isaiah 53. Such a powerful passage. I especially want you to notice the he's and the we's pronouns in this, in this passage. I'm going to break in in verse 3. Isaiah 53. He is despised and rejected of man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our sorrows. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, or the punishment of our peace, was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Seems to me that's another word for what I was saying earlier. It satisfied the Lord. It was the payment suitable for our sins. He hath put 
God hath put him, Jesus, to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. What we mean when we say that Christ bore our guilt is not that he became guilty, but he paid the penalty that was necessary for our guilt. Second thing we need to guard against, when we say that Christ paid the penalty for our sins, we do not mean that Christ's sufferings were the same as our sufferings should have been. If we had paid the penalty for our sins, obviously they're not the same. Number one, we couldn't have. There's nothing that, human, that humans can do to provide that restoration. We cannot do that. It's impossible for us. So Christ's sufferings were different, even in the sense that had we suffered, or when we suffer, I should say, there's often a degree of remorse that we feel. We realize that we did something wrong. We realize that we had it coming. We realize that there's consequences for what we did. Christ didn't have any of that. He didn't have to deal with any remorse on the cross. He had done no wrong. Our sufferings would have endured to all eternity, but Christ's sufferings lasted only for a few hours. His sufferings were not the same as ours would have been. The third thing I see here is that I think sometimes we become confused between the payment of a debt and the payment of a penalty. In the case of a debt, it does not make any difference who pays. If you owe me, I'm just going to say $1,000 or whatever number you want to put on, I don't necessarily care if your mom or dad or your brother or sister pays. But as a creditor, the fact that the money comes back to the creditor is what matters. It does not necessarily matter who pays as long as the debt is paid. What matters in the case of a debt is that it's paid equal to the amount that was set in the promise or the initial um, agreement. But in the case of a penalty, it does make a difference who pays. In the case of a penalty, it matters. God's law said that we should suffer eternal death, eternal separation because of our sin. And Christ paid the penalty by taking on death so that we don't have to experience the second death. For him to suffer was not the same as for us to suffer. He is God and not man. The things that Jesus suffered on the cross were according to the law of God what we should have paid. The sufferings that Jesus suffered were the sufferings that were required of us. It was not a partial satisfaction. It was a full satisfaction against the claims of the law against us. And right now, I want to just take you to Hebrews. I was so inspired as I thought about this. And there's much more that can be said. We're doing a, a quick flyover. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 to 18. And all of these, all of these passages that I've picked out, and I've cherry-picked some of the ones that are especially familiar with us or that especially 
uh, bring out some of the aspects that were especially inspiring to me in doing so, in taking on our punishment, in paying the penalty that we deserve to pay. Jesus paid the penalty, and that makes a difference. He became the high priest. Not only was he the sacrifice, but he was the high priest that oversaw it. Hebrews 2, 16 to 18, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. That means that he became human being, just like us. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, like us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation, to be the sacrifice that was necessary for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or save them that are tempted. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus was that suffering, that suitable sacrifice that satisfied what was due. Hebrews chapter 6, and I should say in chapter 5, it mentions the fact that all the other priests were temporary. They served their time. They did their tenures. And then another priest replaced him. And another priest replaced that priest. And so on. But Jesus, it says, is our forever high priest. He is in the order of Melchizedek. There's no end to him, to his priesthood. He continues forever. It is not a time and then he goes away. He is not served by tenure. But he is our forever high priest. Hebrews chapter 6, 18 to 20. That by two immutable things, unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set up before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. It's another way of saying that what was done was done in the way it was required. It met the, set, the needs, and Jesus was satis- or God was satisfied. He says, the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus. Jesus became a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It is not a tenured high priest of Jesus Christ, but it's something that goes on forever and ever. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Talks about Christ's current work. He is at the right hand of God, the Bible says, interceding for us, talking to God on our behalf, talking to to God about things that we are not able to utter. Romans chapter, uh, was it, uh, where, where is the passage where it talks about groanings which can't be uttered? He is there to intercede for us. How comforting that is. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. But Christ became an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. It's not something temporal, neither by the blood of goats and calves, 
but by his own blood. Not only was he the high priest, but he was the sacrifice. He entered into the, once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, the sprinkling of the unclean, sanctifieth to the puring of the flesh, how much more should the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, without sin to God, and that is able to purge our conscience. It is something that is satisfactory. It is suitable. It is sufficient for what we need. He goes on a little later in the same chapter. Verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. Not, it's not something temporary, temporal. The temporal, he says, were figures of the true. But Christ is entered into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then he must have suffered since the foundation of the world. And there's what I was saying earlier. The sin, the payment that we could have, if it were possible for us to have, we would need to suffer forever. But Christ as our suitable, satisfactory offering suffered once. In the end of the world, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, as it is appointed on the man once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ once offered to bear the sin of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. There again, bringing in the idea of the future that we have not experienced this time yet. Hebrews 10. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness by the, blood of, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for himself through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. That was the avenue, the, the aspect of him becoming humanity. The fact that he became like unto his brethren qualified him. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw not near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love unto good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Again, that idea of the future. There's going to be a day where we'll experience this, and what we're doing here today is merely... A, a picture, a visual of what will be experienced in a much greater and much better way. Hebrews 12. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience or endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the beginning and he is the end. It starts with him and it ends with him. He is the A and the Z. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Or another way of saying that is he ignored the shame. And he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. <clears throat> I think finally, it is very important... <clears throat> To notice that the Bible's teaching about the cross of Christ does not mean that God waited for someone else to pay the penalty so that he could forgive the sinner. Jesus was the plan. 
He was from the foundation of the world. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God had all the cost in this plan. It was all on Him. We had to gain. The cost was on God. And we get to experience the incredible gain. As I close, and in summary, as our great high priest, it's important for us to know that Jesus is never going to lose his position. He is forever at the right hand of God. Other priests died. Other priests replaced them. But Jesus, who was, who is holy, innocent, unstained, who is separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, came down for us. He paid the penalty. He overwhelmed our unholiness and guilt by dying on the cross. He ignored its shame. He joined himself to sinful humanity. He lived here among us and took on him flesh, like the Bible says. But after the cross was said and done, he rose and ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, back to glory. After having offered one perfect sacrifice, he was made perfect forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus will never lose his position as our high priest. There is no need for a replacement. There will, no, there will never be a replacement. He is perpetually our priest, our king. He will forever serve his people. For these Hebrew Christians here that were written to in, in the Hebrew um, book of the Bible, I think this lesson was of great importance to them. They didn't need to turn to anyone else or anything else. No longer did they need the priesthood in Jerusalem. It could not aid them. Only Jesus, who was the fulfillment of the priesthood and the actions in Jerusalem, Jesus could. He would never be dethroned. He was the priest that would be in that position forever. And we, all believers today, I think we need that same enlightenment. As we read the book of Hebrews, as we read the Bible text on the, on the doctrine of atonement, it's important for us to know that Jesus Christ is our perfect intercessor. He is our perfect friend. He is our perfect counselor. He is our perfect teacher. Priestly work is a personal work. If you were a priest in the Old Testament, you ate with the people. You met them at the door. You talked to them about things that were important to them. You assisted them and helped them in ways. It was a personal work. And Jesus Christ is up for that task. He is able to meet us and to talk us through, to help us from where we're at. He is not distant, but close. And he is here right now to aid us in our quest to live our lives today. And that gives me great courage as I think of what is before me and what is before us all. <clears throat> I close with the verses from Romans 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Exclamation mark. There's not very many of those in the Bible. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, 
Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall not be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We ask your grace and guidance on our lives, and where we find ourselves here at this place and this time, whoever we are in this audience, I pray that you would just help us to look to you as our sufficient and suitable sacrifice, the one, the sacrifice that, is, that brings satisfaction to you. Forgive us for the times where we try to conjure up sacrifices that come from ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to look to you, not only here this evening, but to look to you in the future, to claim you as the one who is able to save us, as the Bible tells us, as the Bible promised us. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we go on our journey, as we follow life's pathway, help us to do it in a way that draws others into this relationship, that draws and points other people to this atonement this reconciliation that was given for all people of all time. We thank you for the visuals that we can have here this evening, and we commit this time together where we celebrate and partake in the bread and the grape juice. I pray that you would help us to um, remember your death and suffering, and I pray that this evening would be a means and a way for us to do that. We thank you again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.